you sang that like you believe it. <laughs> he is our living hope. Just had the opportunity yesterday to share that passage, 1 Peter chapter 1, with somebody who's going to experience heaven before too much longer. And the living hope that we have in Christ, there is nothing, nothing like that. And we're all on a journey in our lives. Sometimes the journey is good and sometimes it's hard, but we're all on a journey. Some of you just got back from spring break journey and we're glad you're back. Some of you are going to go on a journey today to somebody's house to celebrate this Resurrection Sunday. But the journey I want us to think about this morning is the journey from loss to joy. The journey from Good Friday to Resurrection Sunday. So I invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn with me to Luke chapter 23. We're going to begin at verse 49 as we think about Good Friday, as we think about the aftermath of the crucifixion and the significant, devastating loss that many people were feeling. And that may be where you are this morning. You may be experiencing a great loss, a great difficulty, a great challenge and struggle in your life. If you're not, it may be just around the corner. In last Sunday morning, Bill Benefield sat here and he had no idea that in 13 or 14 hours he would be having a significant heart attack. And by God's grace, he's doing well now, but he had no idea that was coming. And so this morning, I want us to think about what do we do? How do we journey from loss to joy? And what does that look like? I'd like us to meet three people or groups of people who are experiencing crushing loss on that Good Friday and Saturday. They did not expect to move from loss to joy. And very often, you and I don't expect it. We feel trapped in our loss. So let's learn from them. The first man I want us to look at is Joseph from Arimathea. We call him Joseph of Arimathea because we want to differentiate him from all the other Josephs in the Bible. Arimathea was a town probably about 20 miles to the north of Jerusalem. And as we look at Joseph, he really portrays for us committed hopelessness. He's very committed, we're going to see that, but he's also trapped in grief and loss and hopelessness. This scene on Good Friday at the cross is the only time we meet Joseph, but he is in all four of the gospel accounts. That's how significant God views him. And so let's meet him, let's look at him in chapter 23 beginning at verse 50. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. There's a lot about him in those verses. Not only that he's from Arimathea, but that he was a member of the council. He was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, that council of 70 leaders who guided the nation. Mark tells us that he was a prominent member of that council. He's an important member. And yet, in spite of that, he was not able to stop the tsunami of hatred that swept Jesus away. 
Luke tells us he did not agree with the council's decision to condemn Jesus. And it's interesting because one of the other gospel writers tells us that that decision was unanimous. And so either Joseph left in protest before the vote, or maybe as they gathered for the vote, he wasn't invited because they knew about his sympathies for Jesus. Luke tells us that he was a good and righteous man. The same phrase that he uses in chapter 1 for Zacharias and Elizabeth and in chapter 2 for Simeon. This was a man who was trying to walk with God in fellowship with God. In fact, he is constantly looking for the kingdom of God, it says. And I think he believed that Jesus was the one who was going to bring in the kingdom, that he was the Messiah. But now Jesus is dead. And he's experiencing that crushing loss, that hopelessness. Up to this point, John tells us that he had been a secret disciple of Jesus for fear of his peers on the Sanhedrin. But he isn't going to be secret any longer. He couldn't stop the events from unfolding, but there was something that he could do. And so in verse 52, we see he does it. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation. The Sabbath was beginning. We find out that though he didn't agree with what the council did, he still has a position of prominence and so he can go to Pilate. Most of Jesus' disciples couldn't have gotten an audience with Pilate, but Joseph can. And so he goes in taking a risk because Pilate is not ever a real fan of the Jews. And on that day, he's especially exasperated with them for what they have been pushing him to do to Jesus. He goes and he asks for the body. Now normally, a crucified victim would have been just kind of dumped on the garbage heap. But Pilate, in this instance, perhaps maybe to stick his finger in the eye of the Jews again, allows Joseph to have the body. Joseph, we're told by John in his gospel, had prepared about 75 pounds of spices. He prepared this shroud, which tells us that perhaps he saw the handwriting on the wall during the hearings. He knew what was going to happen. And so he prepares for claiming the body and preparing it for burial. And he washes it and wraps it. Must have been gut-wrenching. Because here he is, wrapping the body of the one that he thought would be the deliverer. And he probably is playing the if-only game. Have you ever played that? If only I had said, if only I hadn't said, if only I had done. Maybe he's thinking, if only, if only I had spoken up sooner. If only I had warned the master. If, if only. And he's being crushed by the loss and by his hopelessness. He takes the body and he puts it in his own unused tomb that's been chiseled out of the rock, which means it was an expensive tomb. And he rolls the stone down the track into place to seal that tomb. 
the dead body has made him ceremonially unclean. He will not be able to participate in the Sabbath celebration. But I don't think he cares. Because he has experienced crushing loss. And so while we admire Joseph's newfound devotion, his commitment seems too late in its hopelessness. Let's meet a second group of people. It's a group of hurting women. And as we look at them, they really exemplify a loving despair They love Jesus. They have helped Jesus throughout his ministry. But now there is nothing they can do other than prepare the body. Look at verse 55. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. They had ministered to Jesus as he ministered in Galilee. They were, according to verse 49, watching at the crucifixion. And now they're watching as Jesus is buried. And they are so crushed by what's happening, they don't even apparently help Joseph. And we also know Nicodemus is there helping Joseph. They don't help, they just watch. But they are committed to doing one more act of ministry for Jesus But the Sabbath is coming, and so they can't do anything in terms of the embalming process, the treating the body and the wrappings with spices. And so being devout Jews like Nicodemus and like Joseph, they leave and go back to observe the Sabbath. They rest. They're devoutly religious. They're devoted to Jesus, but they're devastated by what has happened. And you can imagine From that Friday until Sunday morning, the lack of sleep. Some of you experienced that over the loss of a loved one. Again, they're probably playing the if-only game. If only the master hadn't come to this Passover. If, If only he had been able to get away. If only Pilate had had a little bit of backbone and stood up for him. They're preparing their spices. They're getting ready. We're told in another gospel account that Saturday night when the Sabbath ends, they actually go out and buy more spices to prepare the body. And then as early as possible, they head for the tomb. And it's not a happy walk. But on the first day of the week, chapter 24, verse 1, at early dawn, as early as possible, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And there they are, these women hurting, hopeless, believing that Jesus is dead and crushed by that loss. There's one more group that I want us to look at, the 11 disciples. They exemplify for us fearful unbelief. And if you're looking at your copy of the Scriptures, you're saying, wait a minute, I'm looking at chapter 23 and I don't see the disciples Exactly. They're not there. They are absent without leave. They're AWOL. As far as we know in the gospel accounts, only John was even at the cross. They are terrified. They are afraid of what's going to happen to them now that Jesus has been crucified. 
John tells us that they are soon on that first Sunday morning, they're locked in a room for fear of the Jews. They don't expect a resurrection. They don't believe Jesus will rise from the dead. In fact, when they hear about it, they still don't believe because they've experienced crushing loss. But what we need to understand, what they don't understand yet, is that the path to joy climbs up Calvary's hill. That that crushing loss that they have experienced is actually part of the path to joy. That Jesus had to die on the cross. In fact, chapter 24, that, that said twice, he must suffer and die and then be raised. Because in God's plan, only Jesus' death could pay for the weight of your sin and my sin. In fact, if, if Jesus doesn't die... There's only crushing loss to look forward to. Because if Jesus doesn't die and rise, death wins. And you might have some happiness in this life, but the end of it is crushing loss for you and your family without Calvary. So this morning, if you don't know Jesus as Savior, I want you to understand that that is where the path to joy begins that you can never have true, real joy until you know the Savior. And if you do know Jesus, we need to get a hold of the fact that, that the path to joy does climb up Calvary's hill. Because it's because of Calvary that we know that Jesus understands our loss, that He understands our struggles that he understands our sorrow because he experienced not only all of normal human life, but he experienced death unlike anyone has ever experienced. He knows what loss feels like. The father turned his back on him. And we know that God understands our suffering and our pain because God the father experienced the loss, the death of his own son. That's part of the answer to the whole question and struggle of what do we do about evil in our world? God understands. God knows. And the path away from loss to joy climbs up Calvary's hill seeing what God did in His loss for us. The journey starts and climbs up Calvary's hill, but it doesn't end there. Thank God it doesn't end there. Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers, was a brilliant man with a lot of flaws. One of his flaws was that while he believed that Jesus was a great teacher, he did not believe he was the Savior. In fact, he didn't believe in anything supernatural. And so Jefferson made up his own special edition of the Bible, especially the Gospels. Here's how Jefferson's Gospels end. There they laid Jesus and rolled a great stone at the mouth of the sepulcher and departed. And that's it. And if that's where the story ends, then there would be no journey to joy. There would only be loss. But thank God that the path to joy climbs up Calvary's hill, but it also runs through the empty tomb. Jesus is alive today. He is risen and we need to cling to that truth. 
See, there are two groups of people in this passage that experience the journey to joy. Now, I really wish, and if I had been the Holy Spirit inspiring it, maybe I would have included Joseph. He's not in chapter 24. I would love to know what Joseph, when he found out and what happened. But we do get to see the women. We do get to see the disciples. And the only explanation for the transformation in those two groups is the resurrection. You see, the women, the women are changed by the empty tomb and by the risen Savior. Mark tells us that as they are making their way to the tomb, they are talking about who's going to roll away the stone. And I always think, what were you thinking? I mean, if God hadn't done something, they're not going to roll that one-ton stone away. But they arrive at the tomb, and it's no longer a problem, is it? Look at chapter 24 and verse 2. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. No body of the Lord Jesus. Jesus. That is the first time that Luke uses that name for Jesus. He'll use it all the time in the book of Acts. But it's the first time he uses it in his gospel because now he is the risen Lord. No body. There are a lot of theories about why there was no body. And if you'd like to delve into those, there are a lot of books, but you can also go back to last Easter Sunday's message, April the 17th, 2022, on our webpage or our YouTube page, because I spent lengthy time talking about all the theories that are out there, none of which hold water. Let me just recap it a little bit. One of them is that they went to the wrong tomb. Okay, maybe... Although we know they saw where Jesus was buried. And you'd think if, it was, if they thought, well, whoops, maybe we're in the wrong place, they would have looked further, and they don't. But even if they somehow managed to go to the wrong place, the Jewish, Jewish leaders knew where Jesus was buried. They had sealed the tomb and posted a guard there. All they've got to do is go to the right tomb and produce the body. End of story. The disciples came and stole the body. That's what the Jewish leaders were afraid about. Well, sure, these 11 guys who don't believe a resurrection is going to happen, who are terrified and locked in a room, they somehow worked up the courage to come and very quietly, without alerting the Roman guard, roll that one-ton stone back up the track and steal the body. And then they all died for the lie they knew was not true. It doesn't work. His enemies stole the body. That one's great because I think, why? Why would they steal the body? And if they stole it? Produce it. End of story. My favorite one, though, is that Jesus wasn't really dead. I'd remind you that Joseph and Nicodemus prepared his body like they would prepare a body that was dead. And the Jews of those days knew death. I mean, they didn't have undertakers. They didn't have funeral homes. When a family member or a close friend died, you washed the body. You prepared it. You wrapped it. You took it to the tomb. They, they, much more than you and I, were familiar with what death looked like. The Roman soldiers who rammed a spear into Jesus' side, the centurion who said to Pilate, yeah, he, he really is dead. They knew death. And they said he was dead. But let's just play along with the theory for a minute. So Jesus is almost dead, but not quite. They put him in the tomb. 
He revives enough. Somehow he gets out of that wrapped shroud that he's in, in his weakened condition. He manages to, from the inside now, roll that massive stone back up the track, sneak by the Roman soldiers, and in that condition convince everybody he's risen from the dead. i got to tell you, that takes a lot of faith to believe a theory like that. The explanation is that he is risen. risen That's the explanation. And the women are just about to find that out. Look at verse 4 with me. While they were perplexed about this, confused, not understanding, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened, so isn't it interesting, they're, they're confused and perplexed by what isn't there, and they are frightened by what is there. Two angels. They bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. There's a little bit of rebuke as the angel says, Why in the world are you looking for the living one in a cemetery? And then he interprets the empty tomb. You see, we don't just look at the empty tomb and base our faith on experience. We base it on what God has said. The Son of God had said to them, I will be crucified, buried, and rise on the third day. The angel reminds them of God the Son's words. In fact, in this passage, both in this part of the story and then in the road to Emmaus, which we're going to skip over this morning, and then at the end of the story, in every case, Jesus points them to the Word of God as the explanation for what's happened. And so our faith rests not simply on a tomb that's empty, but on what God says happened there at that tomb. And the women's eyes are now opened The Word of God says, He said that He would come back to life and they believe. And verse 9 tells us who they are. They returned from the tomb and they told these things to the eleven and all the rest. By the way, I kind of like to think that Joseph of Arimathea was one of all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And so they run to tell what happened. But it's up to Matthew to really complete the journey that they're on. In Matthew 28, verse 8, we read, So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. The Greek word for great is mega, you know, mega size, mega. It's it's jumbo-sized joy. And ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. They've traveled from loss and grief to great joy, to worship, which drives them to witness. We heard it sung earlier for us, go and tell. The women are changed by the empty tomb. And the risen Savior, they move from loss to joy. The disciples are also changed by the empty tomb and the risen Savior. These men who were totally unprepared for the resurrection 
and skeptical when they hear about it. They're on a journey. And so we pick up the story. Verse 10, those women run to tell the apostles. But look at verse 11. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Idle tale is really the, the ramblings of a person who is delirious. And they continually refused to believe. Now, with apologies to all the ladies here and the ladies who are watching, in Jewish culture, the testimony of women was not valued. In fact, women couldn't even testify in court. Which is why if you're making up this story, the last thing you would do would be to have a bunch of women be the first witnesses. And so the apostles say, yeah, just these emotional women, you can't believe what they say. They're just, you know, they're, they're just delirious in their grief. But Peter, Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened, amazed, wondering. John tells us, of course, that he was there too. And Peter isn't there yet. He, he, he isn't believing yet. He's not at joy yet, but he's on the road. He's not grieving. He's not sensing as much the loss. He's just amazed and thinking, what in the world has happened here? And later, as we jump past the road to Emmaus to verse 36, we find the other apostles begin to travel as well. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. They are so unprepared and so unbelieving that when Jesus appears, it scares them. They think he's a ghost. Because unlike them, he can appear in the middle of, an, of a locked room. But like them, he says, I have flesh and bones. I have the wounds from the nails. And as we'll see in a moment, he eats something in front of them to prove to them he is not a ghost. And notice how their journey progresses. And while they still disbelieved for joy... This is too good to be true. And we're marveling. They're amazed. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? And he gave them a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. And then in the verses that follow, he commissions them to go and to be witnesses. And then he blesses them. Verse 50, he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. So he goes on a journey of his own. But their journey continues, verse 52. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with mega joy. Oversized, abundant, great joy. And were continually in the temple blessing God. They travel from fearful unbelief and loss to worship to great joy to talking about God, witnessing about God in the temple on a daily basis. 
And that joy isn't lost because he's left them. You read the sequel to Luke, the book of Acts, their joy isn't lost because they suffer persecution. Why? Because they have moved from loss to joy. The path to joy runs through the empty tomb. If Jesus is not alive today, there is no real joy. There can be happiness, there can be a you know, kind of force myself to smile kind of joy, but there's no real joy. I brought with me this morning something you can't see real well, but you might be able to see it sparkle. You say, wow, that looks like gold. Yeah, it does. It's not. It's iron pyrite. It's fool's gold. And if Jesus isn't alive, there is only fool's joy. There is only fake joy. I also brought with me a wooden nickel. Some of you have heard the old expression, don't take any wooden nickels. This isn't even worth five cents. It's fake. And joy and happiness that we might somehow work ourselves up to, it is fake without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because the path to joy runs through the empty tomb. And I don't know what burdens you are carrying in here this morning. I don't know what loss you've experienced. I don't know what struggles you're going through. I I know some of them, but God does. And he wants you to understand that, that loss is real. Calvary is real. Pain and suffering are real. But though weeping may endure for a night, joy comes in the morning. And the reality for those of us who know Christ It may be a lifetime of feeling loss and grief and sorrow, but knowing that we can rejoice because tomorrow is ahead in heaven because Jesus died and rose and we have a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But this morning, if you don't know Jesus, there's no real joy for you to be had, maybe just some counterfeit joy until you come to know the Savior and understand that he died for your sins, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again and now is seated at the Father's right hand and someday he's coming back. And that's why even in loss, we can make the journey to joy. So where are you this morning on that journey? If you don't know Christ, please don't leave here this morning without talking to somebody about it. If you do know Christ, then rejoice in the fact that whatever loss is today, joy comes in the morning. There is a journey to joy because the path to real joy climbs up Calvary's hill through the empty tomb to the risen Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you not only for the cross, but for the empty tomb. Thank you that Jesus is alive. Thank you for the living hope that we have in him for an inheritance ahead that is unfading and undefiled, that is kept for us and that we ourselves are kept for eternity. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that does not know Christ, if there's anyone watching that does not know the Savior, that even today they would reach out to us, that they would find the Savior of Calvary that leads them past the cross 
through the empty tomb to joy. It's in his name we pray. Amen.